Thank you for joining us on the Just For Show show, a podcast where we share our common love of theater and performance with fellow artists. I'm Galen Malik. I'm Heidi Swarthout. And I'm Justin Scheller. In this season finale episode, we turn the magnifying glass back on ourselves for a bit, and later, Craig Gustafson will be here to share some eye-opening stories. Now, on with the show. Excuse me. Excuse me. Hey, Smitty. You there, tall actor guy. Hello there. Hey, my name is Eugene Hopper. I'm season ticket holder here at Red Curtain Theater. I just wanted to tell you you did a fine job in this show tonight. Just spectacular. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Nice meeting you. Have a great I, I night. I tell you what, Smitty, can I call you Smitty? Well, I, I played Smitty. My name is Terrence Jacobs. Well, I got to tell you, Smitty, when you busted into that speakeasy, gun in each hand, chomping on a cigar, well, you made me nervous. That's how good you were. Look, Glenda, that's my wife, Glenda. She stole my bag of jelly beans when you busted in because I was shaking so bad. Oh, my dang beans went flying all over the place. Uh-huh. Well, again, thank you for coming to the show. I hope you and your wife have a lovely Now, where evening. did she go? Glenda? Glenda? Oh, I mean, she might have put her earmuffs back on. You know, that theater is awfully drafty. Of course, Glenda wears earmuffs around the house, too. Poor woman's ears are always freezing. You know, she can hardly hear a word I say most of the time. <laughs> Gee, she sure would be upset if she misses the chance to meet the Smitty. Now, you, you mind waiting here in the lobby for a few minutes until she shows up? Uh, I really... Look, can I ask you something, Smitty? How do you memorize all those lines? I tell you, Glenda sends me a store for a gallon of milk and a bottle of sleeping pills at least twice a week. But if I don't write it down... Oh, for the life of me, I can't remember what I was supposed to get. I usually end up coming home with just more jelly beans. Well, memorization takes practice. Will they let you keep that fedora? You mean my costume? Oh, boy, oh, boy. I sure would like one of those fedoras. You know, Glenda said I can't get one because my head's too big. What do you think? You take a look at my head. Here. See, speaking as a professional, like, what do you think? Could I pull off a fedora? Uh... Are those guns real? Just props. What about the cigar? Yeah, that is actually... You know, yeah. I actually did some acting once. Yeah, my company did a fire safety training video. I played drop. It wasn't the part I wanted, but stop and roll had some onset conflicts, so it made sense to put me in the middle. Wow, that's... Glenda! I just don't know where she could be. Hey, do you mind signing my program? Yeah, sure. Do you have a pen I could Ooh, use? Hot dog, there's Susie from the play. Oh, I almost didn't recognize her without the wig on. Excuse me, Smitty. I gotta go meet her. Woo. Hey there, Susie! Actor lady! Woo-hoo! So, I have a question for you guys. Yes? Why? Why theater? Oh, why theater? Yeah, is I that deep or what? Even, I thought it was gonna be even deeper than that. <laughs> That's plenty deep enough. Why theater? Yeah, like a with a big fat question mark on the end of it. Yeah, no, that's a good question, and and everybody's going to have their own answer, I'm sure. But for me, um, what got me started in theater, and and I guess maybe just as importantly, why do I keep at it? Because exactly, yeah, I think I got into it in school, which I think a lot of people do because there's programs in most schools. For me, at least, it was more, almost as much of a social thing as it was just about theater itself, just making something together. 
And then after you do it in school for a while, then it's like, okay, well, are you going to keep doing it as an adult? Are, are you going to, you know, especially community theater, which is what we talk about on this show, are you going to keep going back to the auditions? Are you going to keep directing shows, whatever your favorite thing is to do in community theater? Um, or are you going to say, you know, that was something I tried and I'm going to move on to something else? I definitely keep coming back to it primarily because every new project is a chance to make something that no one else made before. Like, even if it's mm. even if it's an old script that, that some theater trots out every two years or something like that, you know, uh, there's always a new twist that you can bring to it. Or like, oh, I never played this part. Or we never did it with an all-female cast. Or we never did it this way or that way. So it's always a new project. And you you do it, you work on it, you put it on its feet, and you know you get some sort of reaction. And then you kind of all let it dissipate and you wait for the next thing to come by. And that's kind of, that's what keeps me coming back. Because it's always a little bit different. If it was always the same thing, I don't know. Like if I was on a bowling league and all I did was bowl every week, it may eventually just drag me down and I wouldn't do it. But but theater is a whole different animal. It's it, You're always meeting different people. You're always trying new things to move outside your comfort zone. I think that's a, a big reason why I do it. It's a great guys? point. If you are already a creative person, if that's sort of what you're predisposed to be, you're going to get more of a thrill out of these sort of ever-renewing projects, um, something different each time. Mm. Um Versus there are people who are just extremely goal oriented where it's like, yeah, the, the bowling thing would be thrilling to them to constantly try to uh, beat their score or mm. get consistently really good at it, um, mm. compete. This is definitely, you know, not <laughs> sure there, there's competition involved when you start talking about auditions or this theater versus that theater or, you know, th those kinds of of competition, but largely it's not something that, you know, you, you get a trophy for or anything like yeah. that. It's uh, a lot more open to interpretation. Yeah. We were made to be in the, the theater in elementary school. Mm. We didn't have a choice. We had to be in the musicals that were put on. So when you graduated kindergarten, you did like the little kindergarten mm -hmm. musical and then from third grade through sixth grade, there was each grade level had a musical they did every year. So you had to be a part of that. You didn't have a choice. It was like built into the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So instead of going to music that day, you'd go to your like drama class, I guess you'd say. That's and cool. then, um, yeah, so that's where I first fell in love with it. And then I remember getting a flyer in the mail that a community theater in my neighborhood was putting on Annie, but you had to pay $100 to be a part of the production. And my parents were not willing to, to do that. They're like, why would you pay to be in something? Oh, and, then, yeah. um, and then I found uh, the program, I think I've talked about it on a previous episode, I'd found that children's theater group, Fun Arts. And um, that, that started, I think, like when I was in fifth grade, and then I did that through eighth grade. Um, because my middle school didn't really have a theater program. They had a choir program. And then finally in high school, I did high school theater. But it was something that I think I would have discovered on my own. But it, because it was something that was fostered in our, our school system, I, I found it earlier than I think I would have otherwise. 
That's but wonderful. it's just, I remember it, it mattered so much to me. Like, I'm sure athletes feel like when they, when they're on the field, they are concerned about their performance. They're thinking about, Oh, did I, I don't know, make that pass correctly or could I have run further or what have you? The same was true for me. I was like, did I do that correctly? I mean, I was playing the cow and hey diddle diddle in kindergarten Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it was like, did I jump high enough? Was that, you know, it's like, so even then it was something that I, cared about it mattered to me the way that it looked to the people who were watching like was that was i doing it correctly yeah i was thinking something just just like that actually um when i was thinking back to my school days of theater and because i I started as early as grade school and, and was in it in junior high and high school and the one thing that i kind of noticed even then was i cared about whether the show was going to be a good show probably more than any of the other kids because there were certainly a large contingent of the kids that did not care whatsoever (laughs) yeah 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 what about you Heidi oh well I mean in short why theater because I can't not do it (laughs) I can't stay away um it's you know uh just it's one of the greatest loves of my life um my husband being number one and you know dogs family friends but it's it's just always been a great love and when I was a little kid my my the first sign that I was a weirdo, um, I would act out my imaginary friends. So, which concerned my aunts. My family was a little worried, like, um, <laughs> she's saying her name is this, and she said she's a cowgirl, and like, you know, to my mom, like, is this so? And mom's like, yeah, she does that. It's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, to the point of, you know, if, if I was Betty Lou, the cowgirl, uh, she was not as picky of an eater as Heidi was. She would eat things I wouldn't eat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what a weirdo. And so, uh, you know, and always more, I guess, just predisposed to artistic things. I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't a dancer or a cheerleader or anything like that. As a little kid, I, I was more interested in entering the poster contest, you know, that the dentist's office or just anything like that, that was sort of creative. Those types of projects appealed to me. Yeah, and then as as time went on, you get to do a little bit more, you know, here and there, school plays. Like you said, it's just that that feeling of like, wow, I, I really care about this. I, I really want this to be good. I, I feel like I'm a part of something important. You get that reaction from the audience and um, it's thrilling. There's something that is really thrilling about being able to move a room full of people by playing this other character so yeah and then I went to college I tried to study other things I kept sneaking in theater classes <laughs> and um, was like well I'll just I'll just take this theater class because I need another credit and at one point my advisor called me in and said you, you know you accidentally have a theater minor and <laughs> I was like oops um and so it was you know if you if you focus on this, you could make it your major. And you know, I was like, double major? You know, I didn't want to, I just didn't want to admit that it was anything that I wanted to do, but it was, it was kind of undeniable. And That yeah. adrenaline is addictive. 
<laughs> most definitely that rush before you get on the stage like all right i hope this goes well here we go Ooh, yeah there's there's something about that moment before that is thrilling um i have to imagine people who are like habitual bungee jumpers or skydivers must have a similar rush that they get from doing that um and so i i want to say i want to liken it to that but that's that's also something that keeps me coming back is that that rush yeah the rush is addictive for sure um and then I, i think i don't know as i've gotten older it's also become well a big part of it is the people finding that community of people who are like-minded and, you know, getting to make something together. And that's really special and to share it with an audience. And that's really special. So it's the, the people thing. Um, and then, yeah. And then as I've gotten older, it's also become uh, just seeking to understand people and what drives them and why they do the things they do good or bad, because, you know, it's like, we all know how we're supposed to live our lives or, you know, we're going to try to be good people, but gosh, you know, we screw up and we make mistakes and we do all these things and we hurt each other and we help each other and we love each other and we hate each other. Um, why? You know, and my mind, my mind just goes, why, 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 why? Mm. So with, through theater and, um, and just discovering these different characters, you can sort of find other ways to approach those questions yeah i think you mentioned something about the when you get in front of the audience and this is the part that is fascinating to me and and sort of hits me in the gut even more than the sort of adrenaline rush is just the idea that these people some of which i know some some of whom i don't they want to hear the story that you want to tell and they're along for the ride of whatever this thing is that you're going to do for them and that's that just blows my mind like it's way different from you know playing a ball game in front of a bunch of people because you know yeah you may get some people cheering if you do something right or you know jeering if you do something wrong but it's not quite the same as actually having people show up for something that they might not even know where it's headed and they want to hear the story that you want to tell. Um, and, there, you know, there will be some of the people in the group where it'll really just hit them hard and you'll hear that reaction in the audience. And that, to me, is the crazy part. Like any other hobby, I understand. Like, oh, I've got an idea. I want to make something. I want to build something. It's a knickknack. It's a garden. It's whatever it is. But none of those have a group of essentially strangers coming in after you've done a bunch of work and then experiencing it live with you. It's crazy. Yeah. That shared experience is quite unique. And I I think in this last year with the pandemic, um, the, the importance of theater to my life and to the lives of so many of my friends became evident because it was all of a sudden you know, we, we couldn't do it. It just wasn't an option. And people got creative and found ways to Zoom and um, sure. and connect in other ways just, you know, to, to stay sane. Um, and, and thank goodness for technology that we could do that. But, um, yeah, we I think we all kind of realized, like, this is a huge 
loss that we're all feeling because this is our community. This is our therapy. This is our church. This is so many things to so many people. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about theater is you're, you're conveying these very deep emotions on stage with other people. And you're not always, I mean, in some cases, you've only known them for a few weeks or a week at most. And then, you know, the sh- you put up the show, the show ends and you walk away. And sometimes you meet up with them again and you do another show. But um, yeah, it does sort of create this instant community in within the calendar confines of that show. Do you all find that you're able to maintain those bonds as you go from show to show to show? Heidi should answer first because it's probably different answers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, in in many cases, yes. I mean, I think there are those experiences where when it's done, you're maybe ready to cut ties and walk away and that's okay. You, you did the work together and, and that was that. Um, but I do think in in other cases, um, it does make for some some deep friendships. Some of my best friends, closest friends are people that I've met through the theater. Some of the people that I trust the most are people I've met through the theater. Um, the people who yesterday when I had a big piece of furniture delivered and I had to move some stuff around, you know, who did I call to, to help me with that? A couple of my theater buddies because um, I think uh, all, most of the people who do this they have a big, deep hearts and open minds and with very few exceptions um, are just some of the kindest people I've ever met. So um, yeah, I think that I I do, you know, and I've got a squishy heart anyway. So I I do form attachments and I want to stay in touch with people as best I can in, in, uh, in a lot of cases. It's not always possible and not everyone will feel the same way, but um, it has made for some really important friendships in my life. How about you, Galen? Cut and run. I'm out of here. Peace out. (laughs) That's right. That's right, baby. (laughs) I'm a loner. I'm a rebel. Uh, No, I, I do. Well, I do probably have some sort of undiagnosed social anxiety, but yeah, during the show, the whole cast or a large part of the cast become very trusted friends because Justin, you were saying before, you're, you're in this vulnerable spot. You're doing this thing that you don't know if it's going to work and you're all kind of helping each other out. And yeah, that, that happens. Once the show is over, I am terrible at keeping up with people. Um, if we cross paths again, I remember them and I trust them and I'm happy to work with them again. Um, yeah, there's some really, really great people in theater and people I would work with again and again and again. Um, it's just a personality quirk of mine that I, I kind of need to have a project going in order to stay in contact and to socialize with people because I'm terrible at like manufacturing reasons to talk. So, yeah. What about you, Justin? Yeah, I'd say in in the, like I said earlier, the calendar confines of the show there's this this closeness that's like you can't untether from each other um 
and then yeah usually you know you're you're able to keep in touch with folks once the show is over um but it is really the strongest when you're working with everybody you know you're you have like you had mentioned galen this manufactured or um purposeful reason to to be with one another mm-hmm. well i've been working with galen since 2015 and he hasn't been able to shake me yet so uh justin i guess since what 2019 so yeah uh, yeah that's just well you're like a bad penny heidi you just keep turning up i know i'm telling you that's that's how heidi penny that's how it goes (laughs) any swerve out (laughs) trying to decide which one i like better I'll take it. It's fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll own it. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to mention a few, um, like, probably not so great reasons to get into theater. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm interested in those. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Let me guess. Uh, anybody who gets into it for the big paycheck. That sweet, sweet community theater money. <laughs> sweet, sweet money. <laughs> oh, laughing all the way to the bank. Wait for yeah. those checks to roll in. <laughs> yeah, no, n- nobody I know ever made any money off of community theater. Well, I mean, to be fair, maybe some people get into you know the community theater thing as a stepping stone. Like they're thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to start, and then I'm going to get an agent, and then I'm going to get commercials, and then I'm going to you know climb that ladder and. Maybe that works for some people. Um, I don't recommend it <laughs> as, a, as a strategy, but um, the most of the people that I see in community theater that are happy are not trying to use it as a stepping stone to try to get to something bigger. They just they just like doing community theater. As an actor, though, too, you do want to build a resume. So, you know, for someone who's fresh out of school or um, someone who's trying to start early it's a great way to build credits. I know because a lot of local theaters, you know, um, produce Shakespeare shows, a lot of casting agents like to see Shakespeare on resumes. And so community theater is a good way to, to build a resume in that regard, because there are no royalties that have to be paid in order to put up Shakespeare. And so you'll see a lot of, well, not a lot of community theaters, but you'll see some community theaters, um, put up Shakespeare since there's, you know, they can save that way. Essentially they can be kind of in the, in the black. Yeah. I I certainly wouldn't discourage anybody who wanted to show, to try out for a community theater show um, because we need everybody we can get from all walks of life. And yeah, especially some of the younger recent grads, it's very helpful to have them auditioning for, for local shows like this. But, you know, I, I tend to think that if they're very gung ho about making a career out of acting, that they are, you know, likely to go right to some, uh, I don't know, some some company in downtown Chicago or, or you know, study at uh, Second City or what have you, you know, something something other than the type of community theater I'm used to doing. Well, and I think in in general, I mean, if we're just talking about you know why why to get into community theater. I think you could even just say why or why not to get into acting period at oh, any sure. level. You know, um, if you're getting into it because you uh, want to make big money and be famous, 
there's just sort of a reality check there that, yes, that happens for a very, very small percentage of people. Um, so if you are, you know, very good and you're doing the work and you're hustling and you're, and, and you can make it work, I mean, good on you. Um, but if your intention is, you know, you, you want to be fulfilled um, or it's an artistic mission or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sort of changes the stakes. Now it's, you know, I'm doing this for the love of doing it, not because I'm relying on it as a source of income or for some sort of glory. I guess that's it. If you're, if you're getting into acting for money, fame, and glory, abort, abort, run away. (laughs) What are you doing? Um, Yeah. I mean, and you might be, you might be very talented, but I got to tell you, you you won't be the favorite person in the cast. If every time you show up, you're just like, as soon as I hit it big, I'm forgetting all of you. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I myself am not ambitious for a professional career. I just want to be happy and do it because I love it. And I, and I can't not do it. <laughs> it's not an option. <laughs> a lot of actors are, think or say that they have no other skills. So <laughs> they don't know what else they would do if they were in acting because they feel they have no other skills aside from being on the stage. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I would say that. I mean, I I can recognize I have other skills, yeah. but nothing that fills my heart as much as when I'm when I'm doing this. And I've also I had times in my life that I had to step away and and not you know not do any acting for a while um, because of things that were going on in my career or things that were going on with my family, mm-hmm. and um, you know sometimes those those decisions are made for you. You know, um, mm-hmm. it just doesn't fit in your life for that particular time. Um, and I will tell you, those were always bummer times for me. Mm-hmm. I did not like it. Um, yeah. It was the way things had to be, but um, I couldn't wait to get back to it. I imagine that there are some people who are in theater and their main reason is to keep theater alive and keep bringing new people into theater. Um. I don't, you know, have that mission myself, but I, I think I've probably come across some people uh, in shows that I've been in that were they were directors because they wanted to get people excited in, in acting. Actually, I, I can think of a couple right now um, that are, you know, they love it, they do it because they get something out of it personally. But just as much as that, they want to get kids interested in theater or, you know, get people who didn't think they could act to realize that they can, and you know some. Some people are driven by that. That's why they're in this this thing because they want to bring other people into it and open their eyes to it, which I think is great. Oh yeah, but to keep building and fostering that community, and also to maybe reach audiences who maybe thought they didn't they they you know they don't like Shakespeare. Um, yeah. Well, maybe you haven't seen Shakespeare this way. Maybe you will like it. You know, maybe you mm-hmm. won't. But what if we can bring you something you haven't seen before? Mm-hmm. And change your perspective a little bit, whether it's a musical or whatever it is. Like, if you can maybe sway somebody, get them over to your side. Come on over. It's good over here. <laughs> You're going to like it. I mean, I was, <laughs> you just made me think of, like, these guys have been talking for a while about why they do theater, and none of them mentioned the audience. What about us? <laughs> like, <laughs> they don't do it for us. What, we show up? 
Um, yeah. 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 A lot of it's for the audience. And, and it made me think of with the, the recent pandemic and people not being able to, you know, get out of the house as much as they used to. Um, people really turned to artists, actors, mm-hmm. entertainers to make it more bearable, you know, if they were having a hard time with being stuck at home. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I, yeah. How many hours of Netflix did you guys watch during the <laughs> pandemic? How many movies? Oh, yeah. How many movies did you watch during the pandemic, Justin? Ballpark. I can't even begin to count. But yeah, I was like, I was so excited to see that a new season of any number of shows that I watch on Netflix was dropping so that I could just sit and binge it because there really was not <laughs> anything else to do. And I ended up subscribing to a lot of different apps because. I was just hungry to watch something different and new. But I wanted to get back to your point, though, about theater being um, educational. What are some, aside from the humanities, because obviously theater is educational about the humanities, what are some other random things you've learned from being a part of theater, whether it be something in a script that you're like, oh, I had no idea that that's what that was. And that you, you found it out through your own research or the director explained to you what it was or... Um, yeah, so what are some random things that you've learned from from theater itself or from the plays that you've been a part of I've, that you I've weren't aware a, of before? Yeah, I've learned a lot of random things through being in theater. Um, everything from just communicating in real life, like you know, conflict resolution, um, listening skills, those sorts of things. Um, the sort of things you, you go to therapy to learn so you can get along with your neighbor. Um, yes, I've learned yep. some of that just through being in theater and and looking at the characters in the play and saying, oh, this is how they're interacting. I've learned basic life skills uh, through showing up at, at set builds, um, just what the best cordless drill is to buy. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't expect hmm. to learn, you know, hardware recommendations from, from being involved in theater, but, but there it is. You show up for a set build, you can learn any number of things. Um, yeah, I think there's a wide variety of things you can you can learn if, if you're paying attention and you really want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those lessons about being adaptable and expecting the unexpected. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if, um, I mean, I think about doing shows at the Albright in Batavia and that building has a tin roof. And if it started raining during your performance, okay, well, get louder and here we go. You, you just kind of learn to roll with it and... Mm. And then I think that applies to so many things in life, you know, all the things that you can't control, but you adapt, you roll with it, you do your best, you get through it. Um, And sometimes magical things happen in the process where you're like, I'm just going to, we just have to get through it. And then it's like, oh, wow, this really cool thing happened. So Mm -hmm. just uh, to surrender to life a little bit sometimes is a lesson. And then, I mean, as far as just, um, I don't know, Justin, if you meant more specific things, um, having just done a historic piece, John Westby's adaptation of John and Abigail Adams' letters to each other. And, um, oh, just learning what life was like for people in that time from their own words. Because, you know, you, it's one thing to read it in a history book, but to, to read it, you know, in, in the words of the people who lived it and hear what it was like to have you know, to hear cannons outside of your home because your country's at war. And um, meanwhile, you know, there are refugees streaming in and you have to take them into your house because that's just what people did. So you took in 
families you didn't know and they lived with you and they got sick and maybe died in your house. And um, so things like that are always fascinating to me, you know, learning um, things that, that people have endured that I have no frame of reference for. You know, I think it, it makes you more of an empathetic person because you have all of these other people you can relate to. And then, you know, the, the crazy stuff too, like Galen learned to make an eye patch that he could see through while he juggled in character as he referenced a, a few episodes ago. Um, I wouldn't have or, known that was possible. Yeah. Or, you know, digging into Skylight and there were so many British references or, or the real Inspector Hound. I mean, Annie Slavinsky at Steelbeam gave us a glossary of terms because that script is so full of these very British things that I'm like, what is, what is that? I don't know. Oh, oh, it's this certain candy that they eat. Okay, well, now we're going to go down that rabbit hole and learn about, the, you know, um, what is that candy? What's it made of? What's it taste like? Uh, do they still sell it? Can I get it? <laughs> Can I order it? <laughs> yeah. Sounds delicious. Um, so, yeah, you learn, uh, I don't know, you kind of become like this walking useless trivia person in some case maybe <laughs> how about you justin what are some lessons that you've taken away i was gonna echo what you were saying uh just being in a couple of shows specifically in high school we did a lot of plays about people who are jewish and so we learned a lot about jewish culture like we did fiddler on the roof so we learned the bashana prayers and the mm -hmm. different traditions associated um with that and um trying to think of other specific examples but yeah both of the british shows that you had mentioned i was also a part of so we learned all of the sort of nooks and crannies of those of that culture as well um, and i think that's just in asking that question that was the point i was trying to make is yes theater does teach us about the humanities but also you can learn so many other different things from being a part of shows you can learn things about business as well if you get involved with you know running the house um doesn't necessarily have to be about the performance itself what's the best way to advertise what's the best ticketing service how to handle the books or promote something and and all those are things that you can learn from being in theater shows mm -hmm. lighting and sound and different technology all of those yeah, things. Yeah, you might go you on to of... be the world's best DJ and have a really cool light show because you learned it all in theater. Yeah. You might. Actually, I, know... I won't be doing yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> I know someone who does that, who is involved in lighting, but also does the DJ thing on the side. Oh. So theater, theater lighting, but then DJing on the side and does the lighting. It's wow. um, Andy, who oh, yeah. does a lot of, Andy Marshall, yeah who does a lot of lighting for Janice when he, when Sean needs lights, or I think he also works mm -hmm. with ETC and he's done some yeah. work with steel beam too. Steel I think. beam. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, he does the, the lighting for more than just theater events. Well, and not to mention public speaking, which is a huge fear for so many people. Um, but you know, in your day job, if you have to give a presentation and theater is something you're already acquainted with you're an actor well okay you know this is not as painful for you as it is for maybe some of your coworkers. it's full of lessons it's still painful for me <laughs> is it really <laughs> oh yeah i still get nervous even after years of theater debate speech all of it yeah 
and you still get nervous. I think the stake the stakes are higher for me when it comes to my job as opposed mm. to going out on stage. I don't know why that is, but maybe it's just the idea of this is what's paying the bills <laughs> as opposed to this is something that I'm doing for fun. Ah, don't worry about it. You could always just change jobs and be a DJ. <laughs> there you go. Yes. <laughs> Before we get to our guests, I do want to point out that this is indeed our finale episode of season one. The Just For Show show will be taking a sort of summer vacation, but in a few weeks we'll be back with an exciting new season. Be sure to watch our Facebook page for more information. Now, let's hear from our guest. Greg Gustafson is an accomplished director and writer with a classic wit, and in this conversation he shares some wild times and some wise words with Justin and Heidi. Hi, Craig. Hello. Thank you for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Give me a chance to talk. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Craig Gustafson is a writer, actor, and director out here in the western suburbs of Chicago. And we wanted to talk with him today about some of his experiences. Yes. And for some of you who have worked with Craig before, you might know him as Fearless Leader. Could you tell us a little bit about your, uh, your nickname? Um, early on in the directing, I just started signing that to notes just as a a joke because Fearless Leader was on Rocky and Bullwinkle. He was the former Nazi boss of Boris and Natasha. Not enough, you know, and so it's just, I may have been more dictatorial in those days, but you know, it stuck. Well, right now you are wearing a t-shirt, which says Fearless Leader on it. (laughs) Yeah. So it's stuck. It's stuck. Oh yeah. (laughs) But it's true. There, there's something to be said for that about having a, a good, strong leader. And I know, you know, as someone who's worked with you many times, I, I always trust you. I'm, I'm there. I'm ready to, to go along for the ride because I know that you've got our back. Well, thank you. A couple of years ago, I was about to cast um, a show in DeKalb and I got warned about a couple of the women that I was considering casting. Like, no, 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 no. They're, they're divas. You, you don't want to get into that. And for me, they were good as gold. They did everything I wanted them to do. They contributed uh, as actresses. And I, I came to realize it's just they were the type of actress who, if you didn't know what you were doing, they could walk all over you. If they respected what you uh, were bringing to it, then they were just good as gold. Wow. Yeah, I can believe that. Um, there, there's something about having a structure and knowing that you're time is being used well. And um, I know you are very respectful of actors' times, um, both in the audition process and in the rehearsal process. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, because I started out acting. And so I, you know, I try to do golden rule. How would I like to be treated if I were auditioning? So with the auditions, particularly if it's for a musical, that's really like a conveyor belt. Because I'll put people into groups when they sign up to audition. Then um, they'll spend 20 minutes with me, 20 minutes with the choreographer, 20 minutes with the musical director, and then they're out. I don't keep them sitting around for three hours all night. We, we find out what we need to find out and let them go home. And I will speak from experience. A, a Craig 20 minutes means 20 minutes. So if, you know, it's not, it's not 19, it's not 23, it's 20 <laughs> minutes. Well, I, 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 hold it to, I hold it to a one-page scene. So that, uh, and, and I, but I always try to leave enough time so that I can say to people, 
did I read you for the part you want to be read for? Is there something else? I mean, you have to pick from the scenes that we have here, but what do you want to read for that I haven't read you for? I want everybody to walk out of there feeling that even if they don't get the part, they at least got a, a decent shot at it. How does that differ from the just straight play auditioning? Uh, not much, just in uh, in the time pressure, because with the straight play auditioning, I'll leave like half an hour and get it just me. But then you're out in even less time because you're only there for half an hour. You're not going on to a choreographer and a musical director. And there's plenty of time for uh, reading the scenes because I don't, I don't do improvs. I'm more interested in people, how they interact with each other and how, what they bring to the, to the scene. And hopefully they, unless it's something brand new, they've read it beforehand. I'm looking for somebody who's pretty much on the same page as I am already because I'm lazy. Um, well, that, well, and that way you don't get into arguments either. Uh, it's just uh, you're, you're all heading for the same thing. And I, I try to combine people so that they're reading with everybody else in the group. Do you have a preference when it comes to directing? Do you like directing musicals over plays? or? Um, the main thing is, is uh, it doesn't matter what type of show it is. What matters is, is that I have to love it. Uh, there are a couple of times I've hoard myself out because... I, I went, okay, if you let me direct this show for you, I'll direct this one, which is a proven moneymaker. I've done nonsense three times. <laughs> and I, I liked it, but by the third time, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so bored. And, you, and, you know, it was it was always a different set of actors. So it, there was always something interesting going on there. But, you know, doing any show, directing it three times is too much. How do you keep it fresh in directing a show multiple times? Uh, I don't know that I did. Well, because there were different actors. So different actors bring different things to it. And um, the, the same gags will be done maybe a different way. Uh, it, it, it just, it's, it's a matter of focusing on the actors and what they're bringing to it and how to bring the best out of them, even when you've done the show three times. You're pretty well known for, we were talking about this actually before you jumped on, mm -hmm. you're very well known for directing comedies. And I was saying to Heidi, in the time that I've known you, you definitely have, I think, directed more comedies than dramas. But in recent years, you've directed things like August Osage and um, The Outgoing Tide, right? Right. No, and, the Outgoing Tide was my year of suicides. I did, okay. three, I did three shows in a row about suicides, uh, one in favor, one against, and one a black comedy. <laughs> so you know, we, we got the whole uh, gamut there. I'm, and I'm sorry I interrupted your question. What was it? You're okay. No. And so <laughs> I have two questions now. Was that intentional <laughs> to have a theme of suicides in one year or just happened that way? It just worked that out that way. It was um, Wonder of the World, Outgoing Tide, and uh, the long way, A Long Way Down. Uh, a Long Way Down was very much um, against it. Outgoing Tide was in favor of a person controlling the end of their own life and wonder of the world was goofy so that it was <laughs> uh, yes it was and hey wait a minute i just realized that i i was your second time around directing that oh no <laughs> but it, but it actually it turned out really well because we had uh we had better resources the second time as far as production resources and and it was um it was you it was gail and it was it was Cheryl, it, it was it was it, it was a wonderful show I love oh it. good so we're the exception to that that whole yeah. thing about not directing it <laughs> so, no, the main the main thing was nonsense three times is just too much. <laughs> so can you Sorry, speak Justin. to that 
directing on kind of a dime, directing on a shoestring budget? How, wh- what sorts of things have you done in the past to be resourceful to put up a production? Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> it, it's actually getting easier now because a couple of years ago, I did a show called Silent Laughter. And that one, it's a silent movie on stage. And it's not just, oh, we'll, we'll take a pie now and uh, we'll slip on a banana peel. No, no, no. They took actual gags from Buster Keaton movies, which were incredibly complex. And one way we got around the multiple sets was that it's, it's so much easier now. They have a wonderful projection system there. And I made like Zoom backgrounds. I made a bunch of backgrounds and it was the first real fake background show that they did. And it, it worked really, really well. So I'm happy with that. Uh, otherwise, you you go by the skin of your teeth. If, if it's a theater with a lot of resources, great. If not, um, then you walk in saying, okay, here's how we make it work for you. Uh, Riverfront, I, I'm being asked about directing there again. Tiny, 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 tiny stage. And you have to be very resourceful with it um, because otherwise, you know, the actors are bumping into each other and falling on people's laps in the front row. So it's, um, it's, it's all a matter of just taking in what you have to work with and working around it. Yeah, it's the whole nature of being creative and right. problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, circling back a little bit, we wanted to know a little bit more about your experience with directing commas. Sorry, your experience uh, I, with I, directing I, comedies versus dramas. Yeah, well, not so much commas as uh, I have <laughs> different periods. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. Which yeah. period are you in now? Semicolon. <laughs> I, I just went in for a semicolonoscopy. So, um, uh, anyway, because I was busy thinking of a punchline there, what was the actual question? <laughs> we would like for you to speak to the difference between directing comedies and dramas and what some of your experiences have been with that. Okay. Farces are, are the far end of comedy because it's mainly math and emotion. It's all in the timing, but you have to mean what you're, what you're saying. You, you have to really want what the character wants. It can't just be, hello, I'm doing the gag now. Um, August Osage County, very intense show, and over three hours long, and you have to keep up that intensity. And the cast was the first one I've had since Noises Off, a farce, where they didn't want it to end. They had mm. just such a blast playing all that intensity all the time. They loved it. Um, my, my main example, I think, here of uh, drama and comedy is The Odd Couple. I went to see it at a dinner theater. A friend of mine was playing Felix, and it was awful because it was just two guys sniping it, at each other all night. You didn't believe that he would let the guy into his apartment. It, it, was, just, it was just awful. So um, I ended up directing it a couple of years later. I ended up with the same Felix, and I worked to correct that because I had two guys... And there were two guys who flat on knew comic timing, uh, John Corona and Reddy Rulas, and they just flat out knew it. So that left me free to work on the emotions. When, uh, when Felix's wife calls, uh, she doesn't want to talk to him. And like, she doesn't want to talk to me? Well, well what did she call for? She wants to know when you're, coming, when you're coming to get your things. She wants to have the room repainted. And... Rennie snapped off that line, just absolutely flawless timing. And I said, no, you just spent half an hour talking this guy off a window ledge. This could send him right back out there. You, you can't just 
do it as a punchline. And so he would do it uh, from then on. And when I saw it with an audience, he would take this beat. So it'd be, well, well, then why did she call? And he would try not to say it. And then oh. finally, and finally he would say, she wants to know when you're coming over. She wants to have the room repainted. And then John's reaction of, of utterly being crestfallen, every woman in the audience went, oh, mm. and that's what we need. That carried us through the rest of the night because you believed they were friends. And when I saw it with you guys at uh, Steel Beam, when you did the, the female odd couple, Julie playing uh, Florence got a huge laugh the night I was there just when they opened the door to let her in because she looked like a wounded deer. And it, it just, it set it up. It set it up. So you, with most comedies, not farces necessarily, you have to have the human emotion, the human sympathy. You have to want to see good things happen to these guys. There, there are farces um, usually by Ray Cooney where they're usually British too, unfortunately. The lead is an asshole who deserves everything bad that's happening to him. And who cares if he wins at the end? Mm -hmm. uh, Lend me a tenor. The the lead is he wants to be an opera singer. He wants to marry the girl. It's you're rooting for him. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Pseudalist. He wants to be free. He's a slave and he wants to be free. Anybody can go for that. So no matter what crap he pulls on people, you're rooting for him. You're a director who has definitely been able to sink his teeth into projects that directors would love to be able to direct or wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. What are some things that you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole? Jerry, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. <laughs> I just read it last week for a play reading committee. It, it is the worst play I've ever read that made it to Broadway. <laughs> it's a comedy it's nathan lane oh this is gonna be great and it takes place after the war in titus andronicus so there are uh, and let's stage this around here piles of naked dead bodies of soldiers and women and children um there are jokes about post-mortem flatulence there are taking entrails out and using them as props there's People getting shit thrown in their face. People getting uh, projectile vomiting in their face. Charming. Like, I, I think we reached my limit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there it is. We found it. We found yeah. the limit. And, and the writing is horrible. So it's, oh. it's, it's just a bad show. So, yeah. So there are plays that I wouldn't touch. The, on our honeymoon, Margie and I saw the Roundabout Theater production of Cabaret, which was just foul. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was just, okay. Cabaret is supposed to be edgy. This went over the edge and into the abyss. Hmm. And, and you really, really didn't care about any of them. You know, it, it ends as a tragedy. You didn't care. Who cares? They were, they were awful. Hmm. So. That's such a good point about um, you, you keep coming back to that word care, you know, about caring or having hearts or the emotion you know, that, that attachment to the character. And I think that's so true. And I think that also, ties in with what you said about honesty in comedy and farce. Um, I'm lazy. Well, once you get the audience on your side, everything's easier. So, mm. so that's just me being lazy. I don't know if that's lazy. That sounds like smart. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. Have well, you ever been challenged as an actor to find the parts of a character that are digestible, likable to an audience? 
Well, I usually play lovable schnooks. So it doesn't come up that often. I did get to play um, Shelley Levine in Glengarry Glen Ross, who, for all that he tries to get sympathy for his daughter's illness, it's always a last resort when nothing else is working. He is not a nice fellow. Uh, but I had to, I had to make him at least semi-sympathetic. And I think because I usually play lovable schnooks, that carried over. If you're if you're casting Roxy Hart you need to cast somebody who's lovable because the character is not. When I did it with Heather and Julie, the musical director said, okay, I'm not arguing with you. Uh, yes, uh, Heather and Julie, but why Heather for this role and why Julie for that role? I said, well, Velma has to be a show-stopping performer. That's Julie. She can play sympathy, but she can really stop the show. Heather is lovable just walking on stage which, you know, Julie is too, but Heather has that a, a little more in there. And so it, it was just a balance. And it, it's trying, just trying to get the audience to uh, go along with your characters. It sounds like such a, a formula in your mind. You mentioned math before. Oh, it's always math. Always math and science and balancing in the lab. Well, with, uh, with my rehearsal schedules, as you know, um, I do them in French scenes meaning that whenever somebody else comes into the room, it's a new scene. Then I take those scenes and I organize it in order of who has the least amount to do. So that I, if you've got four or five pages, all of your rehearsals are going to be on one day a week for the first four weeks. And, and then the fifth week, we start putting it all together. The sixth week is production week. For, for a play, for a musical, it, it goes two, two extra weeks. Um, the reason for that is that the first show I directed for community theater, A Night in the Ukraine, we were ready to go two weeks before the show went up. And by the time we got to production week, the actors were so bored. So now I deliberately keep it truncated. So only I and the assistant director know how it's going. But we, have, we leave enough time, the, the two weeks before we open, so that the actors can see it coming together and get enthused about it. It's all part of the formula. Yep. I remember the first time I saw one of your rehearsal schedules, <laughs> and I, I, I was a little intimidated because, you know, once, once you figure it out, then you're good to go. But it was so detailed and broken down. Each of us had a, a little symbol for our name, and, you know, we're talking spreadsheets, and it's color-coded, and my eyes were dancing all around, like, wait, when do I have to be here? But then once I figured it out, I realized, wow, this is all to make the best use of our time and make sure that everybody is in and out. And um, that is such a nice thing. Well, um, and I'm a little nicer about it these days in that I will actually take another hour and uh, because you've got the rows of all the other actors there, I'll cut those out and send each person just their own schedule. So it's less confusing. Oh, very cool. I have that to look forward to. Indeed. <laughs> and I'm sure with a show like Outgoing Tide, where you are working with, what, three actors, mm -hmm. the, that varies then. You're going to have a more intense schedule where you're actually working together more closely in the, in the beginning stages, or was, well, is that not true? Well, with a show like that, um, there are two-person scenes. So like I can have the, the father and son on one night, the father and the, um, and, and the wife, uh, the mother on another night and then scenes with all three on the third night. And so everybody still gets a night off, even with an intense show like that. So I do try to, um, I try to just utilize people's time well. 
Would you mind taking us in the in the uh, Wayback Machine and telling us a little bit about how you got your start in theater? Oh, good Lord. Um, my first show uh, was in kindergarten. It was a minstrel show. There, it was not in blackface. This was 1964, the year of the civil rights movement. And uh, yeah, it was a minstrel show called Totten Town Jamboree. Tot apostrophe and apostrophe town jamboree uh i sang jada a song from the 1920s and that i i then uh didn't really get another chance till like high school but that that was the first one i actually looked it up <laughs> the jada song and was listening to it should we play it for our uh, listeners sure. oh, please i want to hear it Feel free to sing along, Craig. Everything from opera down to harmony. But I have a little song that I will sing to you. It's gonna win you through and through. Yeah, they didn't have me do the the intro, I just did the chorus. But the music is grand. You were five after all. Now you've heard of your will of the wisp, but give a little listen to this. It's called and so here I am imagining five-year-old yeah, Craig Gustafson oh, singing that. Yeah, Eric Cartman. <laughs> That's excellent. I'm sure you brought the house down. Oh, yeah. I don't even remember. I just remember the song. So then it, it came back in your life a few years later. What was it that made it stick? Because you've been, you've been doing this for quite a while. I did, I did some in high school. I, did, uh, I was in Harvey. I was in My Fair Lady. And then at College of DuPage, probably with summer rep. Um, I did summer rep there for like three or four years in a row where you're, you're in three to four shows a year, a summer, all in a two-week period. And then you collapse. <laughs> because it was you were going every single night of the week for two weeks in different shows and they would change the set every night and it was wonderful and that's probably where I, where I just went okay this is a good way to spend my time i'll do this so and then the uh i got to direct night in the ukraine uh don jakelich gave me a chance at uh, ad hoc theater company that was in lyle in the 80s and um i've just i've never looked back i just keep going that's sort of the nature of things, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You just keep going. Mm-hmm. Well, there, were, there was like a year and a half period where I couldn't get arrested as a director. And since then, oh, you want me to direct? I'll take it. Yes. Okay. <sighs> it's overlapping with three other shows. No problem. Oh. <laughs> Our friend I Heidi understand. here yeah, understands that. <laughs> she just yeah. got out of doing two shows there's, in one month. There's a little, there's a, there's an addictive element to it for sure. Oh, yeah. And I think um, in this last year with the pandemic and we were, you know, sort of uh, kept from doing it for the, the first time ever, that right. it, it was something that we had all, I think, taken for granted. And, you know, it was, well, I might step away from theater for a little while to work on my career or people raising a family or whatever it might, but it'll still be there. I can come back to it whenever I want. And then we all had this year mm-hmm. where we couldn't do it. Um, but you still made good use of of that year you wrote quite a bit yeah um well this actually began in 2018 um because i've written 
song parodies. I've written sketches for, for various award shows around here and things like that. And then uh, outside of my wife, Margie, my closest female friend died suddenly. And I, it hit me in the head going, oh, maybe time isn't infinite. Hmm. So if I'm gonna if I'm gonna write, I better start. And so I I just started writing ten minute plays as a as a warm up. I'm still warming up. I've gotten a lot of them on on stage. Riverfront did a night of my shows that ran for like six weeks, and then um, I've been published in two anthologies. A third one is coming up this fall, and I was accepted into the Dramatists Guild of America. Congratulations! That's huge. Yeah, when did that happen? About mid 2020, after after the uh, after I'd had a production of my shows, a night of my shows that that qualified me as well as as the publications in in the anthologies. So I that and the uh, the the admission fee, I have the money, so they let me in. <laughs> I think there's there's definitely some talent that well I'm precedes hoping. that, yeah. You're and you're not afraid to be risque in that either and really make a statement. I watched a clip of your um, speaking Asian uh, <laughs> 10 minute play. Michelle Ho had shared that with me and I thought, wow, this is really making an impact. I'm wildly uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. I think that um, it definitely has a very valid and salient message to give to audiences. Did you do you want to speak to, you know, the the inspiration for that? Sure. Um, I needed a show to fill in for uh, the, the evening I was going to do. And I knew Michelle Ho and Patty Ewan, and I wrote the play for them. Uh, it, it varies as to what the impetus for a show is. Sometimes it just, it's a writing prompt from a contest. But this was written for Michelle and Patty. And I also, I, earlier, I, I did a show about bullying, and I wrote that specifically for a girl in high school who had been bullied. And in both cases... As I was going along, I showed the scripts to the people involved going, okay, am I offending you with this? Uh, is this going where this should be going? And uh, Speaking Asian was about two uh, Asian-American women running an art store. And each person that comes in, one is, one is just like foolish and bigoted without meaning to be, but each one becomes more and more dangerous. The, the guy that played the last character, uh, Mr. Tulip, uh, that was um, Jim Toronto. And he he emailed me about the show. He was very nervous about it because it, it does go into what's happening with Asian Americans right now. And I told him that when I sent it to the two Asian American women who are to play the parts, they're waiting for Margie to divorce me so that they can marry me. They, loved, so they appreciated it. They loved it. They loved it. And I talked one night in rehearsal about, you know, yeah, this one's kind of edgy. And they both went, what are you talking about? I said, well, out of the shows that we're doing, this, this one's pretty edgy. And they said, yeah, if you're white. So, okay, I get it. Yeah. 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 Message yeah. received. And yeah. it was, it was a, it was a scathing takedown of, of racism in a quick little one act play that was also funny because you you have that way of um, you, you'll give the message you'll a couple smoke and mirrors we'll make you laugh we'll make you laugh and then boom there's your message well I don't, I don't want to be preachy about it and, and some of the things that they said in Chinese and in Vietnamese were just foul <laughs> 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 because they're talking to these bigots and 
the woman after, oh, please speak Asian for me. And Asian, you want me to speak Asian? And, <laughs> and so she said something completely foul to her. Um, and the way that came about, I emailed Michelle because this had happened to her. And I said, would you mind if I called the show Speaking Asian? And she messaged back, I love you. Uh, because at a party, somebody had come up to her and said, do you speak Asian? And, wow. not, and not meaning any harm, but just completely clueless. So it was actually based on something that happened in Michelle's life. Wow. And they both they both did it brilliantly. So everybody in the show did. They, they all were just wonderful. Yeah, the whole showcase was great. Um, what was that collection called? Because people can still watch it on YouTube, right? It's called, it's called Night of the Grawlix, G-R-A-W-L-I-X. That's right. Yeah, Grawlix is, um, if you look it up, or even if you don't, it's the same thing. Like if uh, if you're looking at a, a comic strip of Popeye and he starts swearing, the like the punctuation marks and the asterisks and things that replace the swear word, it's called a Grawlix. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea. I watched it blindly and I assumed that the Grawlix was uh, the referencing some kind of uh, Twilight Zone monster or something. I had no idea. Yeah. I, when I title these things, I tend to like put in esoteric words and not care. So You and your wife are wordsmiths for sure. She definitely is. Yes. <laughs> yes. My haiku queen. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about um, some of the different ways that you and your wife, Margie, have worked together because that's pretty unique. Most of us doing this, our, our partners are are not also theater people. Um, I know there are some cases, but I would say it, it's exceptional. Well, that, that actually in the beginning was the rough part because once we got married and the first audition where I did not cast her. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, on both sides. Uh, it was not, <laughs> it was not fun, but you know, we came to the understanding that if I start casting my wife and everything, Pretty soon, nobody's going to hire me. The other people in the audition, like the, the uh, producer, the assistant director, they have to tell me she's the one so that there's no, you know, nepotism involved. And she is, she's been in a few of my productions, but not all of them. It, it, it has to be, it has to be right. I have to be honest about the casting. And she's gone off. She's done other things. She's worked with a group in Naperville, community players of Naperville, and she's done shows with them. And, you know, she. It gets a little rough when we're both doing shows at the same time and we only have one car, but, uh, but we work it out. So we, yeah. And she's, she's also directed your writing. She has. Yeah. She directed for the first 10 minute play evening that green man did. She directed, um, GPS OMFG, which you might remember. I do. I do. <laughs> Since you played two parts in it. So yeah. And she did. And I came in for the first, rehearsal and it was the first time she had directed and i'm i'm like a nervous tutor or something standing in the back going okay how's she going to deal with the actors how things going to happen what's she get and she was fine yeah actors asked her questions. uh she she answered about character and she she was fine she didn't need, need me in there at all she was wonderful so you talked about other actors whom you've worked with often and i was just curious and you've worked at a lot of places too what what are some of the your favorite things about working in the different places you've worked uh that they hire me <laughs> it, it's I, I really i will go anywhere that people let me play so i really um i met i met margie at uh, the witch theater guild i i did uh two shows for stagecoach players um augusto sage county 
and Urinetown, and they both turned out just really, really well. They, they, did, they do a really good job out there. And Summer Place and Riverfront, uh, I, yeah, I, I just like working a lot and in a lot of places. And you'll sometimes hold auditions and then write sketches for people afterwards. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that happened when, when we did my the night of my plays at Riverfront. I didn't have the right people come out to cast three of the shows. I think I just could not get a cast for it. And rather than making phone calls, I took some of the people that I hadn't cast that had showed up. And over the weekend, I wrote three new shows to uh, specifically for those people. And one of those shows is the one being published this fall. So it worked out okay. Because, because I tailored it for the people in the cast. And that, if I have a strong point, uh, and hopefully I do, that would be it, is that I can cast well. Are you of the philosophy that 90% of directing is casting? Yeah. Yeah, because if you have the right cast, then you can concentrate on the 400 other things that you have to concentrate on. Heather, once, uh, when she was in Into the Woods, and we were out after the show one night with the whole cast, and she said, okay, one thing I like about Craig is that he doesn't cast assholes. <laughs> like, which was a great compliment, because I try to cast people that you want to hang around with for the next six to eight weeks. Yeah, casting is it's just it's so important, and I try to get a good mix of people. So if you were, if you were in my last show, you're not necessarily getting in the, ne- the next one because I like you, even though I do because it has to be the right mix for the show. My primary consideration is for the people who are paying money to see it. It's got to be good. So I know um, you've done some shows that some might call a little body. <laughs> Me? Um, <laughs> some shows that might uh, go in the, the adult territory a little bit, leave the kids at home kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, talk a little bit about your feelings about um, how far can you push things how do you feel about censorship in theater uh well i hate censorship anywhere but what happens is i will go in for my first meeting with a theater for uh like if i'm talking to the artistic committee about whether to hire me or not and we will discuss exactly how far i will go and make sure that they are comfortable with how far that is and if not because i can always do a family show i've you know People go, oh, well, you just direct that adult stuff. It's like, yeah, like I had Linus and Lucy kissing each other and you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Um, it, it doesn't happen. I direct family shows, but, you know, you know, these people that are saying these things don't see them. So I, I make sure that we're on the same page as far as content. And that I, I matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, drives me nuts. I heard... Uh, now, you may not be aware of this, but sometimes in theater, rumors happen. Go figure. What? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I heard one about me that uh, there was somebody from one theater was talking about me at another theater saying, uh, yeah, he he had a woman up there with her top off and a, and a member of the theater came in and asked him to change it. And he said no. Like, <laughs> well, of course I said no. This one person did not have the authority to come in and ask me to change it. I had arranged with the theater what was going to happen on stage. And this woman, the she was being looked at from the wrong angle because from the audience, all you could see was her arm in front of her breast. You knew that she did not have a top on because the play called for that. 
Um, but you didn't see anything. So, um, no, of course I didn't change it. I was acting within the parameters that I set with the producers, which I always do. I don't, because I don't want to have those arguments. I want us all to be on the same page and be peaceful, loving confreres. So, um, and that, that, that was a show, it was a night of shows by Rich Orloff. And it was a show about two people who are on a strict vegetarian diet and they start getting erotic about junk food. And post the thing dongs and they're yelling names of junk food <laughs> as they're having sex. And the clothes are flying and the back of the couch is to the audience. So you're not seeing what they're doing, but you're, you're, you're getting, Oh, there's another one of my favorite phrases. They'll get the idea. I was, yeah. direct, I was directing Tartuffe at uh, a theater many years ago. And if you know the show, Elmir, the wife of Orgon, is trying to convince him that Tartuffe is a fraud, a con man. And so she goes, you hide under the table. Let him in here. I will show you. And you, when he, when he goes too far, you come out and save me. So he gets on, Orgon gets under the table, covered by a tablecloth. Tartuffe comes in and the wife starts coming on to him. And his religious facade immediately goes away. But Orgon's not coming out from under the table. And she's like banging on the table, trying <laughs> to get him to come out. And finally, and I said to the actress, okay, you have to get so mad that you forget your own best interests for a minute. And what happens is she rips off her dress and throws it under the table on Orgon's head so that he will see that, hey, what's happening here? Now, and then she lands on the table her side is to the audience. She is, the legs are not toward the audience. And she flings her legs wide open. Tartuffe gets up on a chair, throws himself supposedly between her legs, but as she realizes what's happening, and he, as he is in midair, she rolls off the table, he slams onto the table. And the first time that my producer saw this scene, I heard a growl. It's this, oh. I'm like, what? Does she have to open her legs like that? What are you talking about? She's in 16th, 16th century underwear. She's covered from head to toe. Well, it's just, that's too much. Her opening her legs like that. She could open her arms. It'll mean the same thing. I'm like, it won't mean the same thing. That's definitely and, not the same thing. No. And I, made, yeah. <laughs> I made a deal with him and I said, all right, if it's not just a big laugh, if that isn't the biggest laugh in the show, I'll cut the gag. Never had to cut it. And the, uh, the woman who did it, uh, Barb Zahora, uh, she's, she's been with uh, the Oak Park Shakespeare Festival for like 20 years. She, she's wonderful. She's fearless. I love fearless. Fearless is good. People ask me, well, how do you get these actors to do these things? I'm like, I ask them. If they say no, we do something else. I don't force anybody to do anything that they are uncomfortable doing. And if they suddenly come to me and go, okay, I thought I could do this. I really kind of can't. I go, okay, we'll work out something else. That's fine. I did. I, I just posted yesterday. There was a, a song parody I wrote for Wheaton Drama a couple of years ago where they did a sex farce. And the premise of the song was, well, you can't have nudity at Wheaton Drama, but what if you could? So the song is uh, Not Getting Married Today from Company. Very fast patter song. It was Heather Miller singing Not Getting Naked Today. <sighs> And it just, it got a huge ovation because it's about an actor who says, yes, I can do this. And then they realize, no, I can't. And that's fine. 
just talk to me, ask me, I'm fine. So I heard that you just um, accrued the rights for two more Emma Thompson plays. What it was, was, and this, this just happened. I got the idea three days ago and it came to into being in those three days for some sketches that Emma Thompson wrote, as well as an episode of Ripping Yarns, a Michael Palin, Terry Jones uh, series from the BBC and an episode of Black Adder. So the Emma Thompson thing, well, I'll tell you about that at the end. I contacted the BBC and they did not have the rights, but they gave me the contact information for the people who did, who both answered me within a day saying, yeah, go for it. Because I explained that I wanted to do it for a theater, a tiny theater that has been hard hit by the, uh, the pandemic. And they said, great, go ahead, do it. No royalties. You're good. Wow. Um, yeah, they were wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. The Emma Thompson thing, I still have my letter from years ago when I did these sketches. I wrote to her and uh, she wrote back and she had a little doodle of an elephant that she drew on it. And um, it was from a series that she wrote called Thompson, which apparently was critically reviled in England. The critics just hated it. And there's stuff in there that I love. And so not only did she say, my writing is as free as the air for anyone who wants it. She said, and because you love these sketches, um, you are family and there's a room for you if you come to England. Oh, my wow. God. You've got to take her up on that and take us with you. I know. <laughs> I know. Can I just be a fly on the wall? <laughs> so, yeah. So this, this hopefully will be coming together. And I was amazed at how easily these people said, sure, go ahead and do it. Wow. Yeah, rights are very hard to, or not hard, but there are just hurdles you have to jump through here to get the rights to so many shows. Yeah, these people just like, oh, you need an address, of course, here it is. And, um, and I contacted Michael Palin's people through his website, easy peasy. And they, they were just, they were lovely. They were wonderful. See, Craig is smart because it all comes back to, you just ask. Hmm. Yeah, you that's, just that's ask. one of my main rules is all they can say is no. Unless they hit you. Well, I'll never forget the day I opened up my email and um, there was an opportunity. You were looking for someone to dress as a sexy carrot for a, a <laughs> photo shoot you were doing um, as a, a presentation for a theater. They wanted a promotional packet. And so I'm reading this email and he's like, can you meet me at the costume shop? You'd be in like a carrot costume with some fishnets and heels and let me know. And I, I was like, yeah, OK. I mean, <laughs> you asked. I said, yes. <laughs> I trust you. Craig wants me to dress as a sexy carrot. What, oh, is it Saturday morning? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, do you remember? I think it was um, after Cripple Vintage Man, was it, Heidi, that you came up to me after not seeing me for like seven years? Um, yeah, I, I believe it was. Yeah, because you had auditioned for me years earlier for Sylvia. Yeah. And it was really close between you and Nicole Warren. And she just edged you out by a little teeny tiny bit. And so you came up to me seven years later and you said, um, hi, you don't remember me, but uh, that, back then I was Heidi Duder. I said, yeah, you auditioned for me for Sylvia. You were great. And your, your mouth kind of went, Duh. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Because I, 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 if, if you're good, I remember. Well, you also sent me, that's very kind. Thank you. You also sent me my first ever and one of the only I've ever received sweetest and kindest rejection emails. And my young 20 something, you know, fresh out of college heart so appreciated that because um, 
you know, sometimes you, you get a, a flat no, sometimes you get nothing at all. You're just waiting and then you get nothing and you realize, oh, somebody else got it. Um, and I just thought, wow, that was really nice. What a nice well, that, guy. That, that, that actually, that goes back to, as an actor, how do I want to be treated? And I used to make phone calls because a couple of theaters demanded it, which I stopped doing because I was making people come to the phone to say no to them. And, you know, it's like, well, thank you very much for auditioning. That, that's okay. I, it, I'm, I'm glad to do it. I'm, I'm glad to be there. And, you know, so people were wrecked. A couple people got really rude to me. Yeah. And so, so now I, I just, I do emails. It's yeah. like, I'm polite about it, but um, I, I don't make people listen to my voice and, and force them to try to be cheery about it. Did you work with a director who had bestowed that upon you? Oh, sure. Um, I did um, many, many years ago. I auditioned for company at Wheaton Drama the first time they did it. And the, um, the assistant director was um, given the task of calling the people who were not cast. And she called me and they, they, they always feel like they have to give you a reason. And it's, just, it's the luck of the draw. It's just the luck of the draw and who matches up with who. So uh, she said, well, thank you so much for auditioning. We weren't able to cast you. you it's a show about couples and you just didn't look like you belong with anybody. <gasps> wow. That's sweet. What? <laughs> she thought she was being kind. Wow. <laughs> she thought wrong, but okay. yeah, try again. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. She hasn't heard of the soften the blow tactic. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but that's the thing is that some people just, it, it throws them to have to uh, tell people why they didn't get a part. And I'll tell you flat out at the auditions, like, you know what? If you don't get the part, it's the luck of the draw. You just didn't mix as well with the cat, the perspective cast as somebody else who did. And I, I don't know that mix until I see it in front of me. That's fair. And it's a good reminder. It's good perspective for actors who can't help sometimes, but to take it personally. Oh, yeah. Um, so to be reminded, hey, this isn't, it isn't personal. Yeah. And for me, it's like, if I don't get a part, it's like, I'll take it personally for maybe 10 minutes and they're like, okay, let's move on. Yeah. Next yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Sylvia, that I auditioned for you, I went and saw that show because I, I still wanted to see it. And Nicole was fantastic. She was great. I yeah. couldn't sit in the audience and, and say he made the wrong choice. Cause I was like, she's great. I would have cast her too. <laughs> That, that happened to me with um, the boys next door at uh, the summer place when they were still outdoors. And I auditioned for Arnold and I got, you know, miffed when I didn't get it. And then I got over it. And then I went and saw it. And the guy who played Arnold, Arnold was wonderful. He was, he did a great job. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. He, he was better than me. Whatever. Okay. It Move on. There's, there's more fair. shows. Well, um, we're coming quickly upon the hour and we, and we want to make the best use of your time, but I know that you, you have some stories, Craig Gustafson, <laughs> and I I can't let you go without telling one or two of them. Um, we talk a lot on the podcast about sort of those magic moments, those those really special things that happen in our theatrical lives. And um, you had a, a night in 1992 that I think ranks pretty high for you that we would love to hear about. Okay, that was, and this was with my friend Joy, the one who died of lupus a couple of years ago it got me into writing um so sorry you lost your friend yeah um we we had a mutual friend named louise she auditioned for me for um 
Playboy of the Western World. And as I was cleaning up after the audition, I'm like, hmm, who left the studded dog collar? <laughs> yeah. And so it was Louise who, uh, who was working her way through college as a dominatrix. It's a lifestyle that I am, I am not into. I would go over to her house and she would show me very sharp things and go, want to try this on? No, no, thank you. No. <laughs> and she and her uh, boyfriend were the hosts for uh, the 1992 International Living in Leather Convention at the Vic Theater in Chicago. And she asked me to write a sketch for the, the halftime entertainment. Like, okay. So I got together with Joy. I wrote a sketch. We had like 48 hours to rehearse it. We, did, we just did this marathon session. And we went to the Vic Theater. Joy was in a little brown robe festooned with little cowboys. And I was wearing an Alfred E. Newman mad t-shirt. And we're walking around backstage with people that had multiple pins through their cheeks. And it was, it was an interesting um, culture clash because they're all looking at us like, who are the weirdos? <laughs> so so yeah. we, uh, we get all on relative. stage. Yeah, we get on stage at halftime. And the sketch that I wrote was about a prospective master teaching people how to deal with their slave. <laughs> now, the thing you have to know about these people is that lovely people, but uh, it's role playing. And so if you suggest that they are insensitive, they get very angry. Sure, so there play, are rules, right? There are, there are there rules are, oh, and yeah, guidelines. There, there yeah. Contracts, and, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I start out giving this lecture about the unimportance of the female orgasm. Oh. And exactly, because I had to make the audience want to see bad things happen to me because I, everything I tried to do to the slave backfires on me. It was like Laurel and Hardy S&M. <laughs> so, boy, did they, boy, did they call the right person? Yeah, they yeah. did. Yeah. And so I'm, I bring the, the slave out. She's got on like a black leather mask and this little robe with cowboys on it. And uh, I, I, I said something nasty, like, shut up, slave. And she starts to cry. I'm like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. And she yells sucker and whips off the robe. And she has uh, tiny little panties and fluorescent band-aids on her nipples. And that's it. <laughs> and so we, we do this sketch. And once they realized it was a put on, because I was, I was doing this very antagonistic monologue to people that had whipped chains and bottles <laughs> from all over the world. I mean, they played the American and the Canadian national anthems. Yeah, new meaning to tough crowd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they, uh, when, when they realized it was a put on, people were running down to the stage with cameras, video cameras. So like five years later, I found somebody who had pictures and I've got them. Uh, Facebook won't let me print them. Uh, <laughs> and so we're doing the sketch. And the two things about it were um, there were like Laurel and Hardy slaps between us and, and Andrew Trigstad would be just shaking his head at this because we knew this was one audience we could not fake it for. Mm. So we are belting each other totally. And then uh, she turns around to, to get spanked and we had written the words, this end up on her ass in magic marker. <laughs> and so we do. And at the end I lose, she drags me off stage Standing ovation. I have never been cheered like, I mean, it's, it's the Vic Theater full on a Saturday <laughs> night and we're getting cheered. And uh, we went backstage and all the people that were looking at us like we were weirdos are like, yeah, it was great, man. 
So um, we didn't hang around for the party, needless to say. Uh, and plus, we were exhausted. And so, um, uh, but we were high from the adrenaline for like two weeks. And the next day, you know, Joy's husband, Scott, got out of bed and pulled the blankets back. And he sees Joy lying on her stomach with this end up written on her ass. So, but that, that was the best night of theater of my life. I've, the, hmm. the reaction was something I could not have predicted uh, that that amount of adulation for it and it'll never happen again and i'm just glad it happened once that's fantastic craig what do you want your legacy to be oh can we go easier like what words do you want to hear god say to you uh <laughs> yeah that's easier Ah, uh, yeah that's easier that's um, way easier <laughs> No, you, you've made a great, you've made an amazing impact on the theater community and you continue to. And so I just want to know how, right. how you want to be remembered. He was funny and he was a good guy. You know, hopefully it'll be that. And, you know, there's always, there's always people that don't like you. Uh, I can have a room full of 90 people that love me and one person that hates me. And I'll, I'll worry about that one person all day long, but you get over it. You go for the 90 people that do like you. So. That's right. And you point out that one person to me and I'll let him have it. <laughs> I was curious to know, do you feel like you've seen all of the actors who work out in the Western suburbs with how much you've worked out here as a director? No, because there's, there's new ones all the time. And there are theaters that I amazingly haven't been to. And I love to work with people that have worked with me before, but I also like to have hopefully an equal amount of new people uh, because then the vets can turn to the new people and go, It'll work. He's not crazy. But yeah, because you, you get these things about, oh, community theater is all pre-cath, blah, 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 blah. And so, of course, I did a chart of how many people were new, how many had done one or two shows with me, how many were like return customers, as opposed to the number of new people. And it's like, I just, my main concern is that people know that I cast honestly. I'd, I'd say you, you have a reputation for that, for sure. Well, thank you. Thank you, Craig. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And, and I've been listening to the podcast and, and they're, they're always fascinating. Every time we sit down to talk with somebody, we learn something new. Um, well, I also love the opening sketches. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoy them. Craig, thank you so much for being with us tonight. So th thank you so much for having me. We look forward to seeing your future productions. Until next time. Bye. Jada, 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 Jing, Jing, Jing. And that will do it for this episode of the Just For Show show. I want to thank my fabulous co-hosts, Justin Schaller and Heidi Swarthout, for all of their hard work. I'd like to thank Craig Gustafson for a delightful conversation. And most of all, I'd like to thank you, dear listener, for checking out this season of the Just For Show show. We will be back in just a few short weeks with Season 2, and this little break is a perfect time for you to go back and listen to any previous episodes you may have missed. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or bright ideas you would like to share with us, leave us a comment on our Facebook page or email us at justforshowpodcast at gmail.com. 